It is good to be here. Uh, my wife, Sarah, and I moved to Chicago in 2013 when Emmanuel was planted, and so I have continually been, been encouraged by what God is doing here, and I am just so excited to actually be here and not just see a picture of this space, but this is a crazy cool space. I love being in here, and I am so thankful for what God is doing among you. And so I bring you uh, greetings from all of the Cornerstone Parish. We have, uh, we're going to have six congregations now. Uh, some of us uh, even are here today in the front row over here. We bring greetings in the name of the Lord. Um, the different Cornerstone pastors give you greetings. Pastor Michael Wright, who is excited to be here in just a, a few weeks. Uh, Pastor Jonathan Kinberg, Zach Stallard, and, uh, and Pastor William Beasley, who I personally like to call Father William, because um, he's my dad. Uh, so, but we, uh, we, we bless you. We are so encouraged by what God is doing here and the story of what God has done at Emmanuel Anglican. Uh, and I want to thank you, Aaron, for um, this is my time to publicly thank you for all of the times you picked up my phone calls and coached me. Um, and uh, Aaron and Laura have been significant mentors for Sarah and I as we've been here in the city. Um, and I also want to thank you, Aaron, for giving me such an easy passage today. Yeah, <laughs> baptism now saves you, uh, proclaiming to the spirits in prison. And I want to thank our bishop for preaching on the second half of this passage last week. And because our bishop preached on the second half of this passage, you can listen to that sermon online. It's great. And I'm going to deal with the first half this morning. So would, would you pray with me again? Come, Holy Spirit. We thank you for your presence here. We thank you that your word is living and active that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. We thank you that your word activates our hearts and our minds. And we pray that you would transform us by your power through your word, that we may be obedient to you in every good work. We ask this in your name. Amen. If you want to turn in your bulletins or in your Bibles, if you have them, to 1 Peter 3. I want to look at this verse here in uh, verse 10, actually. Whoever desires to love life and see good days. Love life and good days. I love it when the Bible is a little bit relatable. It's like, yeah, I, I desire to love life and see good days. You can almost imagine a decoration in a kitchen, just love life and good days. I heard a pastor just, you know, wondering... What would you imagine a social media post to be that at the end had hashtag love life or hashtag good days? You can almost just imagine, can't you, someone on the beach with an iced drink, hashtag good days. Or that nice dinner table with all of your closest friends and a snapshot of really delicious looking food, love life. Or maybe a, a little more relatable to me uh, would be my kids slept through the night for the first time. Hashtag love life. Or the weather in Chicago is finally above 40 degrees. Hashtag good days. This is the loving of life. This is the good days that we know. And yet what's really interesting about this passage is Peter here is quoting David in a psalm where it explicitly says that he is on the run from the king trying to kill him. 
love life, good days. And Peter himself is writing to all of the church who themselves are going through great persecution at this moment, who are afraid for their very own lives, afraid for their jobs and their security. So what is Peter doing by quoting this psalm? Well, it's helpful to look at the whole context of First Peter. And can I just say for a second that I have a holy jealousy that you are in First Peter right now because I love this letter. I love this letter. Peter starts saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has caused us to be born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, kept in heaven for you who in this time are being grieved by various trials. And what we see in the rest of 1 Peter is Peter weaving in and out of this juxtaposition of the suffering and the trials in the now with the glory in the future. And as he weaves in and out of the suffering now and the glory to come, he gives specific application. And this is where we see in our passage. But before we get to our passage again, can I just say something? Just remind us that this is true. That we really have been born again into a living hope. That if you believe in Jesus, your hope is that you not only believe in Jesus, but that you have been born into him. That you belong to him. That you are fused with him in an unbreakable bond. His story is your story. His life is your life. And what is his story? Well, his story is one of relinquishing his desires, serving others, washing their feet, and suffering to the point of death. But his story does not end in his death, for he rises from the grave. And so you who are tethered to Jesus, you are joined to him in his suffering and in his death so that likewise you will be joined to him in his glory and in his resurrection, united to Jesus in his suffering, united to Jesus in his death as Paul speaks about. The life of a Christian, the narrative of a Christian is suffer, serve, suffer, serve, Suffer, serve, glory. The paradox, Paul says, is that our life right now is spent joining Jesus in his death so that in our death, we might join Jesus in his life. Your life really ends in glory. Your life really ends with a radiant king in a just world with new bodies, streams of living water in a multi-ethnic city with a wedding feast, really good food, good wine, friendships. You can leap and run and dance without getting tired. Abundant life is what awaits you. This is why Peter says in my favorite verse in the letter, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In your sufferings, in your serving now, set all of your hope in the glory that is to come. And why am I saying this? Well, it's because the narrative we're tempted to live into assumes that death awaits us all and it will end our 
lives. The great Scottish uh, philosopher in the 13th century, William Wallace, once said, every man dies, but not every man truly lives. I really wish I could do a Scottish accent in that moment. I'm not like Aaron. I can't just do an accent of anyone. But we, we live in this narrative thinking death actually ends our lives. And so if death awaits us all, then you have to take as much out of life as you can. You have to grasp. You have to find the good days. You have to find the love of life, and you have to suck as much out of it. You've got to climb the ladder. Eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Live life to its fullest, for it's all you have. Go skydiving. Go Rocky Mountain climbing. Go 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. You've got to live like you're dying. Grasp as much as you can because it ends in death and you'll lose it. Take the good days. But with this narrative also thinking that life ends at our death, we're also tempted when we think about how hard our situations are or how much we've messed up, how broken our relationships have become, and we see no way out. We stop and think, what's the point? It's useless. It's nothing. It, it ends in death anyway. I want good days. I want to love life, but I'm never going to have that. So we give up, we disengage. But in Jesus, if you are born into him, you do not need to live grasping for whatever comfort and good circumstance you can hold on to, nor do you need to give up. When life feels really pointless, your end is glory. A true blessing awaits you, and so now you have the freedom to suffer and serve, waiting for that glory. The narrative that we live into is suffer, serve, suffer, serve, suffer, serve, glory. So if you can turn back in your passage again, we see Peter speaking about this, says, beginning in verse 8, finally, and you've got to love Peter, right? Peter, you can tell here, he is a true preacher at heart. It says finally, and he's like halfway through the letter. So I grew up as a pastor's kid. I have seen my dad and other pastors do that a lot of times. And so uh, what he's talking about here is, is in light of all that I've said, in light of all that's going on, in light of the suffering that you're experiencing now and the glory that is to come, here is how you live. All of you have unity of mind, Sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. My commentators all know that blessing that Peter is speaking about at the end, that is the glory to come. That is where all of our hope should be set. And what Peter is saying is this glory to come, this blessing that we have, is an inexhaustible well for us to draw from in our present sufferings so that we can bless others. This blessing that we have received is what allows us to bless anyone and everyone, no matter the circumstance, because this blessing is so great. So if someone reviles you, You can bless them in return, not repaying what they deserve, but going out of what you have 
been given. Right? Peter says, live to obtain that blessing. He's not saying earn that blessing, right? He's super clear. Christ died once. He's the one who suffered so that he would bring us to God. Jesus is the one who brings us to himself. We don't earn it, but live with your eyes set forward to this blessing to come. And I love how he describes uh, these two verses of how we live in light of the blessing because it's so bodily. I've been reading this the last couple of weeks, and I've just almost invited the Lord just as I breathe in deeply to, to make my body feel this, to have a tender heart, a humble mind. If you don't have to grasp or if you don't have to give up, you can actually be relaxed knowing you're The Lord is your blessing. He is going to come and bring you to himself. And so you don't have to exalt yourself. You can wait for him to exalt you. You can live in unity with your brothers and sisters. When others revile you, you know what will be spoken to you on the last day. A tender heart, a humble mind. And then Peter continues quoting David about the importance of speech ethics. How important our tongue is that we speak blessings to others. Like James says, that we we don't cause a fire to come of evil with our tongues. And he continues in verse 13, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Again, speaking of that glory to come. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Have no fear. This is one of the places in the Bible where we should step back and ask the question, really? Have no fear? Are you really expecting me, Peter, to have no fear? Especially in the context where Christians are about to be killed. Have no fear. Let that statement shock you because fear is so normal to us. We really know how to fear well. And it actually makes a lot of sense because in our narrative where we think death ends us, fear actually makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of reason to fear. Are there any, uh, any Brene Brown fans here? Really? Oh, hey, thank you. Yeah, Kate. I, I know you, Kate. I know you. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, well, Brene Brown is a groundbreaking researcher around shame and vulnerability. She teaches at the University of Houston. And in 2013, she actually had an interview with Oprah. And she said, I think the central question this country has been asking for the last decade is, what am I supposed to be afraid of and whose fault is it? She says anxiety is fear. Jealousy is fear. It's elements of a fear-based culture that addiction is fear. Eating is fear. Drugs are fear. We are all so very afraid. And she likes to just kind of jab at you. And she says, uh, especially those who don't want to admit they're afraid, are the easiest to see just how much fear is in their lives. So what is it that we are afraid of? Or what are we afraid of? What we're afraid of is loss. We're afraid of losing that which we love the most. And if you can allow me to read a longer quote 
by Brene Brown here. I'll try to just even step into her shoes. She says, I've always been prone to worry and anxiety, but after I became a mother, negotiating joy, gratitude, and scarcity felt like a full-time job. For years, my fear of something terrible happening to my children actually prevented me from fully embracing joy and gratitude. Every time I came too close to softening into sheer joyfulness about my children and how much I love them, I'd picture something terrible happening. I picture losing everything in a flash. At first, I thought I was crazy. Was I the only person who did this? As my therapist and I started working on it, I realized that my too-good-to-be-true was totally related to fear, scarcity, and vulnerability. Knowing those are pretty universal emotions, I gathered up the courage to talk about my experiences with a group of 500 parents who had come to one of my parenting lectures. I gave an example of standing over my daughter, watching her sleep, feeling totally engulfed in gratitude, then being ripped out of that joy and gratitude by images of something bad happening to her. You could have heard a pin drop. I thought, oh God, I'm crazy. And now they're all sitting there like, she's a nut. How do we get out of here? Then all of a sudden, I heard the sound of a woman toward the back starting to cry. Not sniffle cry, but sob cry. That sound was followed by someone from the front shouting out, oh my God, why do we do that? What does it mean? The auditorium erupted in some kind of crazy parent revival. As I had suspected, I was not alone. The more we love something or someone, the more we are afraid of losing them. We have a problem. In this world, we lose. Sometimes our fears aren't actually as irrational as we hoped that they would be. See, we're stuck. We feel like we can't lose those things that are most precious to us. And yet, inevitably, eventually, we all lose everything. So what do you love the most that you are afraid of losing? Losing perhaps the respect and admiration of those you respect and admire? If your fears surround rejection, Brene Brown actually says that leads us to a, a kind of perfectionism, which is based off of a fear that people will see me and not accept me. And we think perfectionism will keep us from being rejected, but instead it just keeps us from being known. Right, we fear maybe that we'll lose our jobs unless you don't like your job and then probably hope you might lose your job. You fear losing money, fear what that might look like if your bank account had a certain number in it. Can't stop thinking about that. You fear death of loved ones or yourself. And our minds can be obsessed with what if this happens, what if that happens. And fear leads us to grasp onto the things that we have, to get as much possibly out of them because we won't be able to handle it if it's gone, to clench, unwilling to let it go. This is my life. This is my good days. But fear, likewise, can cause the exact opposite and lead us totally disengage. I can't love something that much 
I can't, I can't handle losing. To give up on anything in this world. The narrative of the resurrection, the narrative that we're born into of suffer, serve, glory, says that your worst fears may come true. They probably aren't as likely as you might wake up at 3 a.m. fearing, but they may come true. Eventually, you will lose those which you love the most. You will suffer loss in this world. But the resurrection hope is that is only temporary. The worst that can happen to you is only temporary. In the power of the resurrection, everything lost will be restored. The narrative of glory is that all of your losses will be undone. That's why Paul says, oh death, where is your sting? Oh hell, where is your victory? Because death no longer ends it all. George Herbert says death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him just a gardener. This is why Peter says, who is there to harm you? You're gonna be blessed. Who can possibly harm you? What's the worst anyone can do? It's a real question. You can kill me, but I'm gonna rise from the dead. You can threaten me, but my future is clear. You can speak all kinds of evil against me, but I know the words spoken about me on the last day. You can take away all of my money, but there is treasure beyond price in store for me. You can take what I most love, but you cannot take the resurrection. For just as Jesus rose from the dead, you too will rise. And the loss is real. Doesn't take away the grief and the pain of loss. But it is temporary. And whatever is taken away will be given back tenfold. So Peter is encouraging us, live like this. Live as this is true. And I love in the Bible, whenever there's commands of how to live, it's also supplemented with imitate me as I do this, right? It's really hard to know how do, how do we do this without seeing it done in someone's life, right? The most important question I think a Christian can ask is who are the five people I'm intentionally imitating in my Christian life? So how do we find those people and imitate who are really living in suffering, awaiting the glory? For me, one of those people, his name is Scott Berkey. He was my campus director in the Christian ministry I was in at the University of Illinois. He led a crew there. Uh, and he and his wife, Unchung, just have such a rich faith. They're incredible parents, right? It's, it's when I, when I, uh, I, I don't know if you're ever like this or uh, can look at parents and be like, holy cow, how are their kids so obedient? I do that with Bishop Stewart and Mama Catherine, by the way. Kids are so obedient if you ever go to their home. Um, but Scott and Unchung, such a, an incredible family. They love their children. And, and Scott really has loved me. He actually spent three years meeting with me weekly just to help me grow in love with Jesus and how to live the Christian life. And so this past summer, actually, our church allowed me to go on a, a learning break, kind of a six-week, just growing in my development 
as a pastor, and I was able to go in this cohort um, that Scott and Unchung actually led for Sarah and I. And the best part about that wasn't just the learning piece, but the fact that we actually got to live in the same dorm. We were in a campus dorm in Colorado with them. And so we got to be over in their home for dinner, or by home, I mean like a college dorm room for dinner. And, uh, and my kids would wake up uh, um, you know, early in the morning at the crack of dawn, and we would go outside, and we would see their kids just playing outside. Scott and Unchung were also the, the first people, one of the few first people that we called when we learned that we had twins. We have boy-girl twins, 20 months old now, um, because their twins are 10 years older, uh, Jaden and Ava. And so we got to spend a lot of time with Jaden and Ava this summer. Jaden actually would always be the one outside at about uh, 5 a.m. at the crack of dawn playing on his ripstick. He would just be like scootering around with the helmet on literally every single day. And uh, he would always stop in and say hi to us because he would love talking to my son, Joshua, because he could see himself uh, in Joshua, who also was a twin. Uh, Jaden loved uh, books. He would read Lord of the Rings. He would read C.S. Lewis. Uh, he was energetic. He couldn't stop playing with Legos. Um, and he was, he was a delightful kid. And uh, this past fall, on, uh, on a Tuesday, on November 14th, after the Berkey family had a normal dinner. Um, Jaden suffered a severe anaphylactic allergic reaction and asthma attack, which led to a prolonged loss of oxygen. He went to the hospital, but three days later, um, he passed away. And he passed away when literally thousands of people around the world were praying for him and praying for the Berkey family. The next morning, November 18th, Scott posted on Facebook, I was greatly encouraged by 1 Corinthians 15 this morning, a passage that speaks about the glory to come. Jaden knew and loved Jesus and had preceded us in going to him. That is truth and comfort to us. We do not grieve as those who have no hope. But we will need God's grace moment by moment as we approach the pain of life without him. A couple weeks after Jaden's death, I remember talking to Scott on the phone, and he said something along the lines of, this loss is every bit as hard as I would have ever imagined it is to lose a child. But God's presence and the hope of eternity is greater than I have ever imagined. Scott and his wife, Unchung, they are living in the narrative of glory. They are living in the narrative of serve, suffer, and glory. At Jaden's funeral, Scott quoted C.S. Lewis's last battle, one of Jaden's favorite books, and C.S. Lewis said, all their life in this world and all their adventures had been only the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story in which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. They're joining Jaden 
in that story, and they know it as truth. And it's in this context that Peter continues saying, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. What this assumes is this. People see you suffer differently. I don't know if you're like me, and I've gotten this verse wrong until this week. I thought always, if I'm honest, that people uh, that ask for a reason for the faith that is in you. It's for the hope that is in you. It's when people watch you suffer and they watch you serve and they can't understand why are you acting this way. You are not living as if death ends your life. They ask, what is going on? And what Peter says simply is, be honest. It's Jesus. When people ask Scott and Unchung, how are you handling yourself? They're honest. It's hard. They, they speak. They're, they are not making up for the grief and the loss. But they share, Jesus is my hope. I could not do this without him. Brothers and sisters, glory awaits you. Life unending where all will be restored. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.